invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 14 tonight. Exodus chapter 14. Thank you, ladies, for that wonderful special. And um, 10,000 years, and it'll, it'll just have begun. I'll tell you what a wonderful thought that is to know that we will ever be with the Lord. And uh, I, I tell you, I trust that the Lord is becoming ever increasing precious to you uh, as you're uh, on this planet. And it's so very thankful for that wonderful reminder. Just a few things off of the back table I want to encourage you to take a look at. Uh, a lot of times in our meetings, uh, we have a lot of people who will make a decision or God speaks to them about a, a specific matter in their life. And uh, they say, man, I wish uh, I had a resource to help me for that. And that's kind of one of the reasons we have that table back there. And there's a variety of things back there, um, stuff for men, for ladies, for teens, even for kids, things that are full of the word of God. The, the most in, important influence upon your life unquestionably is the word of God. And these things are filled, these resources are filled with the word of God. And these will ministry long after we're gone. So I just want to encourage you to take a look at that. Uh, one book I want to encourage you to look at is called How to Read the Bible Book by Book. And uh, what this does is this takes all the books of the Bible, gives you an overview of them, but it shows you how the Bible is not 66 different books, but it's really 66 different books with one message. And so what it does, like here is Genesis, it'll give you some uh, uh, orienting data for Genesis and an overview, and then specific advice of how to read that specific book, or if it's a different uh, genre of literature, the wisdom books or the historical books or a, a book on eschatology, such as Revelation. And then it begins to break down uh, the book. You see here is Genesis 2, 4 to 426, and I'll give you uh, just a little word there. So you can even use this for your devotional reading, but it does that with every book of the Bible and gives you an overview and breaks the whole book down. And uh, we, we can sell this for you for $13. I think it retails for almost 20 and so let me encourage you to take a look at that. It would be a great uh, companion for your uh, Bible reading or your study in the Word of God. Uh, and then another book by Elizabeth George. Ladies, if you've ever read anything by Elizabeth George, you know she really connects with ladies. Uh, it's written several years ago. It's called Life Management for Busy Women, Living Out God's Plan and Passion with Passion and Purpose. And so it's uh, been a, a wonderful help. And so ladies, let me encourage you to take a look at that. And uh, that will be a blessing to you. And uh, a book on trials difficulties and sufferings, I cannot recommend this book to you uh, enough, or more highly, um, it's called Offscript, written by Kerry Schmidt. Uh, Kerry uh, is a pastor up in Connecticut, uh, he had cancer, and uh, God uh, uh, had a different script for Kerry, a different script than what he would have written for his own life. And so that's where this book was born off Offscript, when God has different plans than your own agenda. Uh, but just a wonderful, wonderful book. Ten decisions that will transform your perspective in the midst of trials. Just super fantastic. He really hit it out of the park with this one. Let me encourage you to take a look at that. That's called Off Script. And uh, I think we saw that for either for 13 or something like that. And then a CD from the Wilds Christian Camps called Risen. And uh, it's important to get good godly music into your heart and into your family and your life. And uh, the song that you sung tonight, See the Christ, that's on the CD. And so it's fully orchestrated, choir singing that. And so let me encourage you to take a look at that. And uh, that's been one of my favorite CDs, and we certainly have enjoyed that. Well, Exodus chapter 14, would you look there with me in your scriptures tonight? And I'm going to use uh, PowerPoint tonight. We're going to be taking a look at uh, several different verses and passages. And uh, it might be helpful for us to have uh, this on PowerPoint tonight. 
And so I think that's back there. Okay, Exodus chapter 14, God inspired these words. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speaking of the children of Israel, that they turn into camp before Pihiroth, between Migdal and the sea, over against Belzephon, before he shall encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them. I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. He said, why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And he made ready his chariot, that's Pharaoh speaking, and took his people with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots, and all the chariots of Egypt, and captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with a high hand. The Egyptians pursued after them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, and his horsemen, and his army, and overtook them in camping by the sea beside Pihiroth, before Belzephon. When Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes. Behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out, Unto the Lord. I want to preach a very simple message entitled, The Red Sea Rules. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. We pray that you would be a wonderful blessing to your people that are here. Father, we are so thankful that you are alive, you're active, you're advancing your kingdom. You have a plan for our life and none can stay it. And Father, I pray that we would submit to the, to the plan that you've asked us and the roads you've asked us to walk, even though they're hard, they're difficult. Lord, I know that you'll give us the grace to sustain us on that journey. I realize for some in this room, they're treading deeper waters than I will ever tread in my entire life. Father, I pray that you administer to them deeply out of this passage of Scripture. Thank you for what alone you can do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It was February 12th of 2010. <clears throat> Our team pulled into Providence Baptist Church in Riverview, Florida. We had done several meetings there. And uh, as we pulled in, we pulled in on a Friday, and we were coming a day early, uh, and I, I pulled in, and uh, I left the truck and trailer kind of idling there next to the office and the gym, and I was with the maintenance guy, we were on the back side of the property, and we were looking at how are we going to get the trailer back there, and, and where the power was, and the sewer connections, and the water, and things of that nature, and, and so all the family, Chris and all the kids, and they were younger, uh, this is obviously six years ago, they were in the truck, and... and um, a man came into the Christian school that day after school to pick up his son. He had a son in the Christian school there. And he got out of his car and started to run wildly over to the truck, yelling and screaming, running across the parking lot. Now, Kristen's in the truck by herself. She didn't know if the guy was coming to kill her or what. And, and uh, you know, I'm on the backside of the property. And he comes running up to the truck banging on the door of the truck, yelling and screaming. She lowered the window down just enough so she could hear what, what he was saying. And all she could hear him saying was, Ma'am, you have to get out of your truck. Your truck is on fire. She opened up the door. She got Abby and Alyssa out, and she turned to get Andrew out, who was three at the time. When she turned to get Austin out of his car seat, the, uh, there was so much smoke billowing up out of the engine, she couldn't even see out of the windshield. She could hear the engine explode and pop and twist as pieces and parts of the engine were falling to the ground on fire. And 
She went to unbuckle Austin out of his car seat, and her hands were shaking so bad she couldn't get the car seat to buckle. I mean, you know, we've done it hundreds of times, in and out, in and out. Finally, the Lord allowed her to unbuckle the car seat. She grabbed Austin. She jumped out. And moments later, I hear my name being yelled. And so we, the maintenance man and I are running around the corner. And it quite wasn't to this point yet. But when I turned the corner, saw the truck was on fire. And this is actually a picture there that you can see. You can't even see the trailer. It's connected. It's back there. And, uh, but it quite wasn't ablaze at that point yet. But the truck was on fire. And, you know, I'm not a hero. But, man, I was fully gearing up to go in there. And I thought, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old just clawing at their car seat, being burned alive, dying of smoke inhalation, not knowing what's going on, unable to free themselves. Everyone went running up to the truck about, about 10 feet away or 15 feet away. I saw Kristen at the corner of the building, and so I ran up there, and she goes, you know what, all of us are out, all of us are fine, nobody is in the truck. And I thought, well, praise God, let it burn. And I can buy another truck, but I can't buy another family. And I realized I'm a very blessed man to even have kids tonight. We were in our little family huddle watching our truck burn there in the parking lot of the church. First Peter 4 comes to my mind, beloved. That means, hey, you loved of God. Think it not strange concerning this fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. I believe in the literal inter interpretation of scripture, but that was a fiery trial to us. And really, in a certain sense, this is exactly where we find God's people in Exodus chapter 14. They're in a very difficult situation. They're trapped by the body of water called the Red Sea. They're trapped by the pursuing army of Egypt and Pharaoh. Trapped by sword and sea, nowhere to run, nowhere to go, nowhere to hide, nowhere to run, no way to defend themselves, no way to change any of the circumstances that they found themselves in. They were literally trapped. And I realize if you walked in these doors tonight that maybe that's exactly where you are in life tonight. Maybe there's an incurable disease that has come into your family or into your life itself. Maybe financial waves that seem like they're going to crush you or strained relationships or a prodigal son or daughter. And that's hard, isn't it? Several years ago, I read a little book by Robert Morgan called The Red Sea Rules. If you ever find it, you ought to get it. It's a wonderful book. And some of the principles I'm going to share it with you tonight are out of that book. But I tell you, I, I came to Exodus chapter 14, and God ministered to my soul in such a powerful way out of this chapter. And I trust that he'll do it to your heart as he did it in mine that day. As we look at Exodus chapter 14, if you know your Bible, this is the passage where God delivers his children at the Red Sea. And he allows them to walk through on dry land and supernaturally provides a way of deliverance for them in this very difficult time. But the same God at the Red Sea is the same God that works in 2016. And he may not part the waters today, but he can still provide ways of deliverance in your trials and in your tribulations. You know what? God will always make a way for his tired yet trusting children, even if he has to split the sea in order to do it. And I just really want to walk through the text tonight and show you really six strategies how you can be delivered in every difficult time. Really six strategies and principles how you can go from panic to praise. Would you look at those with me? Look at Exodus chapter 14. We find the first principle in verses 1 and 2. Exodus chapter 14 
in verse 1, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they turn in a camp before Pihiroth, between Migdal and the sea, over against Baal Zephon, before he shall encamp by the sea. Now, as you look at uh, verse number 2, it wasn't arbitrary where God wanted Moses to encamp, was it? If you look at verse 2, and that's up on the screen, God took the pains and the time to detail for Moses and give him specific coordinates where he wanted Moses to encamp. So it wasn't arbitrary. God had a specific place where he wanted Moses and all the children of Israel to encamp. Moses, right here in this spot, that's where I want you to be. And you see here at Pihiroth, and you're going to take a look at that in just a minute. And you see Migdal and Baal Zephon. So again, it wasn't arbitrary. God was very specific and took land, uh, 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 landmarks and specific coordinates so Moses would know exactly where to go. Now, when you look at a map of how the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, I do want to be uh, uh, really fair tonight. There is a, a good amount of debate uh, by theologians and scholars as to how actually they traveled through the Sinai Peninsula, how they wandered in that wilderness, or how they, how they got there. We know about two or three specific locations, but other than that, it's an educated guess. And, and so this is up here. They would, have, uh, they would have left Egypt up here, and they would have uh, crossed over here. Up here is where the Reed Sea is, and that's basically a creek. And this is where liberal scholars will say, oh, it wasn't the Red Sea. It was the Reed Sea. It was just a scribal error. They copied it down wrong. It was the Reed Sea. That's how two to three million people were able to cross it. And when a liberal theologian was telling this to a little girl in Sunday school, and she said, wow, that's even a greater miracle that God used a creek to drown an entire Egyptian army. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and, and you know, we know that it wasn't the Reed Sea, it wasn't the scribal air, it was the Red Sea. And so they would have crossed uh, up in that area there. And so, but again, through the Sinai Peninsula, this is like incredible, incredible terrain, just you see, it's wilderness, but really it's mountains and it's desert and just bare canyons with steep cliffs on either side. Um, there are some people that believe Sinai is over here. I believe they have it correct in the map. It's over here. Again, there is some debate where, Mount, where, the, where Sinai was, where God gave the law to Moses. And, 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 you know, here's the point. When you go over to Israel or you go to the promised land, we don't, serve, we don't worship the geographical location we sure serve the God of the event and, what, and, the, and whatever he did there. And we serve that God. So um, there are two basic ideas of where they crossed. Uh, there is one, they believe, some believe they crossed at the Bitter Lakes up here, which, uh, which I don't hold to that. But there are two primarily. One is the southern location in the Straits of Tehran. And I'll show you a map of that. And the other is the Nueva Beach. And I hold to the, to the Nueva Beach. And again, you're going to have to flesh it out for yourself. And, and there is some debate about that. And, uh, but again, here is a, a modern-day map, topographical map of that. And right here is the Nueva Beach. That's where I believe that they crossed. Again, they would have traveled at the bottom of these canyons, which are called wadis. And they would have come out right here. This is the only beach that had large enough for two to three million people. And you can see, once they got there, there was nowhere to go. And if the Egyptian army is closing in on them, they're trapped by sword and the mountains. In fact, in verse 3 and 4, the Bible says, The wilderness has shut them in. In other words, that means the mountains has closed them in. And when Pharaoh found out that's where they are, oh man, this is, uh, they might as well put a bow on it. This is a gift. You know, there's no better place to wipe them out. And so again, here's a modern day map. The Nueva Beach would be right here. Boy, don't you think Moses would have loved to have had those roads back then? <laughs> Boy, that would have been a help. But there's the picture of the Nueva Beach. Isn't that something else? I believe it's right here 
where God put that pillar of fire and he kept back the Egyptian army all back in there and it gave light uh, at night to all the uh, Israelites as they were crossing into the Red Sea. But there's another picture of it. Isn't that something else? Here you see right here, this is Pihiroth. You know what Pihiroth means in the Hebrew? Mouth of the gorges. Boy, doesn't that accurately describe what's right there? And so Migdal was an Egyptian installation. They've had it here as well to guard their borders. And there's actually a column that was erected here. And it's, uh, it's been there in recent times. But since the Saudis have taken it down on their side and, and on the other side. And this was erected at the time of Solomon. And there were inscriptions in Hebrew on it that said death, Moses, Egypt, water. And so King Solomon erected these to, to mark where they had crossed. Uh, during uh, during that that uh, that Red Sea crossings, and in fact, when you they're doing some dives, and you could see this in some videos, they're doing some dives in the Red Sea, and you know what they're finding in this location, going over to the Saudi side, it's about 11 miles wide. They are finding coral that are growing in the shape of chariot wheels. Now, coral attaches itself to a host; it doesn't grow just by itself. It has to attach itself to something, and it'll grow around it. Nature doesn't grow <clears throat> in 90 degree angles. And uh, there is, they've gone down there, and there's actual with metal detectors, there's actually metal that it's growing around. And so what's also interesting is that this is the only pharaoh that used eight-spoke chariot wheels. No other pharaoh in all the dynasties used eight-spoke chariot wheels. The chariot wheels that they're finding are the coral is growing in the shape of eight-spoke chariot wheels. Well, go figure. We, we know exactly uh, what, 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 what had happened there. Here's the southern location. This is the Straits of Tehran. And uh, this would have been Baal Zephon, a center, they believe Baal Zephon, they say, to be a, a center of, a, of pagan worship. Again, another Egyptian installation was here. But look right in the middle here, deep water, 1,280 meters to the north, 1,392 meters to the south. But right in the middle, boy, was this almost land bridge. 205 meters, that's very deep, you couldn't swim it. 13 meters, 40 feet, boy, it'd be difficult to swim that. 65 meters right here, very shallow. But if you take all the water away, there would be a land bridge. But it's very similar up at the Nueva Beach. This is a map I want you to see, that there was to be a lot deep to the north, the Argonese deep to the south, and right in the middle was this land bridge. So in other words, if you were to take out all the waters, this computer-generated image, you'll see that this is the Argonese deep, and, uh, or this is the Argonese deep uh, here to the south, the a lot deep to the north. But look right in the middle, there's this land bridge. And so here again, another picture. Boy, there would be sheer cliffs on either side with this gradual slope that comes out to the other side. And it was right, uh, uh, this, this underwater land bridge. You know, thousands of years earlier, when God spoke and he formed the world into existence, that God was creating a place that would serve as a way of deliverance for his people thousands of years before they even knew they needed a deliverance. That's a message all in itself. And God had it all in control, and he had it all planned. Moses didn't know what was underneath the water. They thought they were trapped. In fact, when they got there, they thought this is the perfect storm, and they thought that they got set up. They thought Moses was in league with Pharaoh, and there were no graves in Egypt. You brought us out to this place to kill us. They tell him in verses 11 and following. But God brought them to a difficult spot that they were unable to deliver themselves that was very difficult. They were staring death in the face and you know what god says right there that's where i want you to encamp yeah in that difficult spot you can't defend yourself you can't change any of the circumstances right there that's where i want you to encamp 
and you say, Ron, why did you go through all this? I simply went through all that to show you the first strategy that will uh, to be delivered in difficult times. And it's simply this. God means for you to be tonight right where you are. God means for you to be tonight right where you are. You know what, sometimes obedience to Christ places us in the middle of a trial. The three Hebrew boys in Daniel 3, they were commanded to bow to the wicked image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They didn't bow. And by the way, the music, some scholars believe, only would have lasted 12 seconds. They weren't asking them to give up their worship of Jehovah God. Just bow for 12 seconds, then he could do whatever he wanted to do. Rather than bow for 12 seconds, they would rather burn. Would to God we'd have that kind of conviction. The king heated the furnace seven times hotter. They threw the men in. Nebuchadnezzar then went to watch these men burn. Doesn't that show you how twisted and demented he was? He stepped back. He said, did we not throw three in the flame? But yet I see a fourth and his image is like unto the son of God. Listen, when you trust Christ in your trials, others will see Christ. Told the disciples to get in the boat to go to the other side of the sea. And in the middle of the sea there, there was a storm hit. They thought they were going to die. And you know what? Obedience to Christ placed them in that storm. But Christ was present with them in the storm as well. You say, Ron, what if I'm in a tough spot? Because I made a mistake. And it was a sinful one. You know what you do? You confess your sin to God. You confess your sin to whoever your sin affected. And then you put yourself under strategy number one. God means for you to be right where you are. You see, God is so sovereign that he could take a wicked choice without ever ordaining that wicked choice and use it for his own glory. Remember what happened to Joseph? The brothers beat him up, threw him into slavery. In Genesis 37, he has this dream that the sun, moon, the 11 stars, they're going to bow down to you. All the other brothers' chiefs bow down to his. And God was saying, Joseph, one day you're going to rule. The next thing he knows, he's in a slave train 300 miles down to Egypt, chained to a prisoner in front of him, chained to a slave behind him, and every footprint he put in the sand 300 miles is a long way to think. I'm sure he thought, God... You said I was going to rule, now look at me. He gets down into Potiphar's house, and you know the story, that God begins to bless Potiphar's house, not for Potiphar, but for Joseph's sake, and because Joseph walked with his God. And Potiphar recognized this, he put him in charge of everything. Just comes in to do his duties those days, and Potiphar's wife tempts him. He chooses to do right. She claims that he attacked her, and now he's thrown in prison for 13 years. He was 17 when he went in, 30 when he got out. Boy, if there's anybody that could have said, God, what are you doing? God, why have you done this? It could have been Joseph. In the basement of that prison, he interpreted the dreams of the butler and the baker. The baker was executed. The butler was exalted back to his position. And the only man that could have arranged for Joseph's release, the butler forgot about him until years later when Pharaoh has a dream. He didn't know what it meant. And he says, I remember my falsest day. There's a guy in prison. His, his God is the God of dreams. You need to go get a man named Joseph. They bring Joseph out of prison. He interprets the dreams of the power of God. And the dream that Pharaoh had is there were seven really good years that you need to store the food in those seven good years because there are seven years of famine that are going to follow it. And it's going to be so severe. If you don't save the food in the first seven years, it's going to wipe out the population of earth. So appoint a man 
and it's the spirit of wisdom and excellence who will be diligent and fervent in this matter. And Pharaoh said, I can't think of anybody else but you, Joseph. Takes off his ring, puts it on Joseph. He rides in the chariot right behind, uh, uh, right behind Pharaoh. Joseph went from a prisoner <clears throat> to a prime minister overnight. And guess who came walking into Egypt for food? All the brothers. He finally reveals himself to them. They all move down to Egypt, and you get to the end of the, cha- end of the book, chapter 50. Remember, dad dies. And if you know the story, the brothers thought, oh, there was nothing keeping Joseph back now. <laughs> and so they came to Joseph and confessed and again. And he wept, I believe, because he had the attitude, guys, I forgave you a long time ago. But he looked at the brothers, and he, remember what he said? He says, you meant it unto me for evil, but God meant it for good. And God took wicked choice after wicked choice after wicked choice, and he used it to accomplish his purposes. And if you've made a sinful choice, confess it to God. Confess it to those your sin has affected and influenced and impacted. And then you put yourself in our strategy number one. God means for you to be tonight right where you are. Isn't it tremendously encouraging? That God has a plan and he is going to accomplish that which he purposes. And God is working in your life. And God means for you to be right where you are. I also want you to find, uh, see another one with me. Would you look at verse 5 now? Notice what the scripture says in verse 5. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. And he said, why have we done this? So we've let Israel go from serving us. And he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Would you look at verse 7? And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. Ladies and gentlemen, there was not an army that could withstand what you just read in verse 7. There wasn't an army on the planet that could withstand what you just read in verse 7. Verse 7 is an ancient description, or a description rather, of an ancient weapon of mass destruction. Egypt was the boy on the block. Nobody could defeat him. And again, there was no army that could defeat him, let alone a bunch of Hebrew slaves that didn't even have weapons. Verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with a high hand. By the way, there are people that may mean you harm and that may spitefully use you. You know what? God could even work in those circumstances. Verse 9, But the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamping by the sea beside Pihiroth before Belzephon. When Pharaoh drew nigh, children of Israel lifted up their eyes and beheld the Egyptians marched after them and they were sore afraid. They lifted up their eyes. They saw the greatest weapon on the planet bearing down on them. And they became dismayed. But you know what we find here? It's another strategy for difficult times. It's simply this. Acknowledge your enemy, but keep your eyes on the Lord. Acknowledge your enemy, but keep your eye on the Lord. You know, it would have been foolish for the Israelites to pretend that the Egyptians weren't there, right? I mean, you just couldn't pull the ostrich to, uh, 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 trick and stick your head in the sand and pretend like you didn't have they didn't have this problem 
Listen, they still had to step out on faith into the Red Sea. They still had to be proactive. They still had to navigate this very difficult situation, and they still had to make some choices. They couldn't use the ostrich strategy. You, you know what? They had to acknowledge uh, their, their enemy was there, but keep your eyes on the Lord. But you know what we usually do? We do the opposite, right? Yeah, we acknowledge the Lord, but then we keep our eye on our enemy or on that physical malady or on the difficulties that we have. And instead of focusing on our Savior, we focus on our suffering, how our rights were violated, how we were wrong, how we deserve better. Maybe God is withholding something from me that I deserve. Boy, when you read the Pauline epistles, it seemed like Paul got it backwards. Acts 26, 18, he looked at a crowd of lost people and he attributed their lostness to the working of Satan. Paul lamented to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, that those who reject the gospel are caught in the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Paul told the, told the, told the church at Corinth to forgive the man that had sinned against them, lest Satan should get advantage over us, for we are not ignorant of his devices, 2 Corinthians 4. He told the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians, uh, he, he said uh, that, that the member that they were uh, disciplining out of the church, that they were turning such a one over to Satan. Paul referred to a sickness that he had as a messenger of Satan to buffet me. He told the Thessalonian church, many times I purposed to come unto you, but Satan hindered us or I was led hither too. In Ephesians chapter 4, he saw Christians at the church of Ephesus harboring bitter and unforgiving spirits one toward another. And he said, neither give place to the devil. Don't let the devil have that kind of foothold in your life. In Ephesians 6, he said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And time and time and time again, it seemed like Paul had it backwards. It seemed like he acknowledged the Lord but kept his eye on his enemy. Could have seemed like Job did that. He lost all of his children to tornadoes. He lost all of his herds to barbarians. He lost all of his wealth to misfortune. He lost all of his health to disease. His wife said, curse God and die. He lost her for all practical purposes. And yet as Job sat among the ashes, taking broken pottery shards, scraping out his boils. He had no clue that all these events had been orchestrated by the wicked one in an attempt to assassinate his soul, but they had been. Man, I tell you, when you look at these guys, it seems like they got it backwards. You know, like they acknowledged the Lord that kept their eye on the enemy. But you know what is so wonderful? When you go back to the Pauline epistles, you know what you find? You find the name Lord over 189 times. You find the name uh, 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 Savior uh, for our Lord over 200 times. And you find the name Christ over 389 times. All the while you find the name devil appears 10 times. And Satan, the name Satan appears only six. And Paul did get it right. He had a firm grasp on who he was dealing with. He acknowledged the enemy, but you know what? He kept his eye on the Lord. And anybody who ever did anything for God, they got this right. Your focus will determine your future. When you take your eyes off the Lord, just like Peter did, that's when Peter began to sink, and that's when you begin to sink as well. When you focus on all the circumstances around you. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is 2 uh, Kings 6. Remember when the king of Assyria wanted to conquer Israel? And Israel militarily was always one step ahead of Assyri the Assyrian army. And the king of Assyria thought, I've got a spy somewhere in my government. 
And his counselor said, no, king, you don't have a spy. God knows the words that you speak in your bedchamber. He's telling Elisha. Elisha's telling the king of Israel. And if you want to conquer Israel, you got to cut off the supply line of information. You got to get rid of Elisha. And that's exactly what they tried to do in 2 Kings 6. So all the Assyrian army, they go down to Elisha's homestead. They're surrounding this small little homestead. Elisha's servant comes out in the morning, sees the Assyrian army. He goes inside, looks at Elisha. If you remember the text, he says, Alas, master, how shall we do? In other words, we're toast. How are we going to get out of this? And if you remember the scriptures, remember what Elisha said? Lord, open his eyes. That he may see. And God opened up the eyes of Elisha, or of Elisha's servant, and he saw the host of God's chariots in flaming swords surrounding the Assyrian army. And Elisha said, They that be with us are more than be with them. Yeah, they acknowledged the enemy, but they kept their eye on the Lord. Man, don't focus on your suffering, focus on your Savior. Your focus will determine your future. Boy, for them, they were so enthralled and just, they lifted up their eyes and they were sore dismayed. Knowledge your enemy, but keep your eyes upon the Lord. Would you notice another one with me? I don't have it on the screen, but, I, but it is in verse 10. I want you to see it. Behold, the Egyptians marched after them and they were sore afraid and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. You know what another strategy in difficult times, they didn't list it here. You know what? It's Pray. Pray. Prayer changes things. Listen, we don't have a God that wants to frustrate you. Why would God command you to pray if it didn't make any difference? It doesn't. James 5 says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, it availeth much. I remember we were in our little, fam uh, a little family huddle watching her truck burn. I felt the tug of my pants. And it was Abigail. She was seven at the time. She says, Daddy. Her eyes were just filled with amazement and wonder. She said, Daddy, remember what we prayed for? Every travel day, I get in the truck and I pray this prayer. God, would you protect our property and our persons and allow us to arrive safely at the church today and help my wife, Kristen, walk in the spirit. <laughs> no, no, I don't pray that. <laughs> the truth be known, I'm probably the one that <laughs> needs to be prayed for to walk in the spirit on a travel day. But yeah, she says, Daddy, do you remember what we prayed for? God heard us. And he answered. If it takes a burn truck for my girls to learn the power of prayer, I'll let them burn the next one. But can I just be transparent with you tonight? I got in the truck that day. And I prayed that prayer routinely. How many times do we just go through life and our prayer is just perfunctory and routine and we're nothing more than just a religious robot going through the motions Pray! Changes things. Well, look at what happens in verse number 11. The Bible says, And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore, as thou deal thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt, is not this the word which we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness they just got done calling upon god and immediately they go into panic 
You know what happens when we get into the difficult times and trials? We start pointing the finger, don't we? Oh, well, if you wouldn't have done this, then you know what? We never would have been in this situation. Oh, well, if you would have taken care of this months ago, this never would have happened. And you know what? We start pointing the finger, do we not? Well, that's exactly what they started to do. And they went into a panic. You come downstairs, you sit at the table, and your spouse slides across a folder of papers. You look down, you see the words divorce. They say, I want out, and I'm taking the house and kids. You go into work, your boss says, hey, can we talk for a moment? You sit down in privacy and he said, yeah, you're one of the greatest employees we've had over the last 25, 30 years, but the company is downsizing. We're eliminating your position. You got two weeks to find another job. State trooper calls. Your daughter was coming home from work. She was hit by a drunk driver. We were there within minutes, but there was nothing we could do. She was gone. The doctor calls and says, we got the results back from your biopsy. The tumor was malignant, stage four. We need to talk about chemo or treatment. And immediately, just like that, we, we, we go into panic. We think, oh, what, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this or make it through this? God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. And you know what? God was telling them, listen, you don't have to fear. I realize there's difficult things that you're about to face and there are difficult things that maybe you're facing tonight. But look at the response of Moses in verse 13. And Moses said, and the people, fear ye not. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see them no more again forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Look at the faith of Moses. God hasn't even done anything yet. And you know the principle we find here? It's simply this. Stay calm and confident, not in yourself, but in your God. And this is important. And give him time and room to work. Stay calm and confident in your God, in his person and who he is. Stay calm and confident not only in his person, but all of his promises and in his past performances. Stay calm and confident in your God. This is important. Give him time and room to work. Because ladies and gentlemen, one of the greatest weapons that the devil employs on God's people is not holding you back from God's will. It's pushing you ahead of it. And that's when we take over. And we start crunching the numbers. And we start working the angles. And we start manipulating the situations. And we live life in our own strength and we take over. So you don't want to steal Pastor Stunner as he goes through Joshua. God told them, every place the sole of your foot treads upon, I'm going to give it to you. They never fully took that, took that land. I believe they will in the millennium. But only two times they failed. One is they went to attack Ai after Jericho. 
They didn't ask God. They didn't consult him. They didn't say, what do you want us to do? They said, oh, God, we conquered Jericho. AI, that's a small town. Don't make all 30,000 troops go up. Just send about 3,000. And don't make all the men to labor. So they only sent 3,000. They had the danger of overconfidence. And 36 men were killed as they were retreating down the mountain at Cherubim. And they were beat so badly, 36 men were killed. They took over and they failed. The other time that they took over and failed, remember the next group they were to attack, they dressed themselves in old battered clothes and they pretended that they were from a far country on a journey. Their bread was moldy. Their sandals were worn out. Hey, we've heard about you and we've heard about your God and we want to sign a peace treaty and worship that God. And you know what? They were deceived. Israel, they didn't ask God. They didn't consult them. They took over. They signed the treaty and you know what? They failed. Remember Abraham in the Bible? I'm going to give you a son. And I'm going to make a great nation out of him. All the nations that bless him, I will bless all the nations that curse him, I will curse. We have a Bible reason to be a friend of Israel tonight. We really do. Sarah was getting beyond the years of childbearing, and Abraham was like, Lord, um, I know how these things work. As if the Lord didn't, right? And, and so what does he do? He goes into a handmaid. They have a child, and look at the mess we have today. And we've lost peace in the Middle East ever since. And we will never have peace until the Prince of Peace returns. Well, God loves those people just as much as he loves you and me. But look at the mess. Multiplied millions of times over. Sarah gets beyond the years of childbearing, and God alone is the giver and taker of life. He opens Sarah's womb. She has a child. They call his name Isaac. And you don't see it in the biblical text. But can you see it in the theater of your mind? That uh, Abraham gets down on his knees and says, Oh God. Just sit waited. Many of these principles I'm giving tonight, you're not going to see them happen overnight. But if you give God time and room and you stay calm and confident in his person, in his promises, in his past performances, you're going to see every one of these fleshed out. Stay calm and confident in your God and give him time and room to work. Well, notice another one. We see this in verse, uh, beginning in verse number 21, I believe. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And it came to pass that in the morning watch, the Lord looked upon the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians. And took off their chariot wheels, they drave, that they drave them heavily, so that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for again against the Egyptians. You know, it's amazing, I was reminded of this. Uh, not long ago, there were some... Uh, Hamas terrorists, they were firing rockets, uh, trying to fire rockets into Jerusalem. And as soon as they would fire the rockets, the rockets would just go haywire and, and, and off track. And one of the terrorists said, God is fighting for them. Boy, I, I remember this text. Verse 26, And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians and upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength. When the morning appeared, this is verse 27, 
and the morning appeared, the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, and there remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked upon the dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall of them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. Who would have ever thought God would have used an old man Moses stretching a stick over a body of water to eradicate the most sophisticated and most powerful army on the planet? If you were to tell Israel this, this in advance, they would have said, that's plan A? Man, where's plan B? Go get that. This is the best we got. Who would have ever thought God? He's an old man stretching a stick over a body of water to eradicate the greatest army on the planet. And you know what we learn here? And it's simply another strategy. Trust God to deliver in his own unique way. Trust God to deliver in his own unique way. You need to say, Ron, you know what? You don't know what I'm facing. I need a miracle tonight. You know what? I know someone who can help you out with that. I really do. We have a God that can do the impossible. But, you know, really today, how does God work a lot of times? He works to the explainable. In other words, you know, five years ago, we invested this money, then the stock split, we reinvested it, we took the dividends, we reinvested it back in the stock, and then three months ago, this happened, and then two months ago, this happened, and that's how we got here today with this extra cash that was available to make this purchase. And so you look back, and you can explain how all that happened, but it came from the hand of God nonetheless. Trust God to deliver in his own unique way, and in that deliverance may come from somewhere that didn't seem possible, that you didn't even know about, just like these people, trust God to deliver. And he may deliver you in a way that you never dreamed possible or in the way that you wanted to be delivered, but he'll deliver you just the same. Trust God to deliver you in his own unique way. Several years ago, we had three months of meetings canceled. We had another family traveling with us, and I thought, not only am I going to feed my family, I'm going to feed theirs. You know, I, I, I had the responsibility and bore the weight for them as well, and you know, I started to fill out applications for fast food restaurants. Flipping burgers was not my chosen career path. <laughs> you know, sometimes God opens up a door of deliverance and provision, and it's very low. And you have to humble yourself and stoop down to go through it, but it's from the hand of God. Started to look around things in the house or we don't have a house, we have a trailer, but looking around things that we could sell on eBay or Amazon just to put food on, on our table. And I remember Kristen was cleaning out a purse she hadn't used in three years. We found a $40 Home Depot card in there. I said, hey, what else you got in there? You know? Oh, there's Jimmy Hoffa. I wonder where he went. You know? and we were cleaning out our drawer of life. Every family has a drawer of life, right? You know that one drawer that just collects everything? We call that the drawer of life, you know. We were cleaning out our drawer of life, and, and uh, I found an envelope from a revival meeting that I had preached a year earlier. The love offering was in there, the expense check, all the money from the book table. The deposit slip was filled out. All the checks were endorsed, and I, I had just simply forgot about it or misplaced it or failed to deposit. God knew we didn't need that money. A year ago, he knew he needed, we needed it back. Sometimes God allows things to last longer than they normally would have. 
allowing their shoes, the children of Israel, to last longer than they normally would have. Hey, have you ever had a car? He said, God, I don't have enough money to buy a new car or even a used car. God, would you extend the life of this car? And then God extended the life of that car so long, he started to pray God would kill it. We had a car like that growing up in Minnesota. The salt had rusted out the floorboard in the back. And going down the road, we could see the paint of the road going by. You know, and boom, we thought we were going to get sucked out of there as kids. But you know what? That was God's provision for our family. Trust God to deliver in his own unique way. Several years ago, we were in Indianapolis. Alyssa was two. This was 10 years ago. And she started to suffer some breathing complications. I called the Children's Hospital in Noblesville, and, and they said, you need to bring her in right away. I says, okay, well, I got to stop here first, and then we're coming. They said, sir, you don't understand. Her heart is going to stop. You need to bring her in right now. And we were rushing to the Children's Hospital there in Noblesville, and, uh, and they met us there. They were expecting us. They got Alyssa. They put her in this oxygen tent. They put a put an IV in her, and here's this little two-year-old just holding onto her blanket, sucking her thumb, barely able to breathe. And if you ever felt helpless as a parent, that was us. We received excellent medical care as a fantastic facility. The doctors were wonderful, very serious, but in a matter of five days, the matter subsided. But because I was out of North Carolina, the way that my insurance was at the time, I was out of network. And because I was out of network, when they processed my insurance, I owed $6,000. No, I didn't have six grand burning a hole in my pocket. You know, I don't know how that hits you, but I didn't have it burn a hole in my pocket. And I, so I wrote the hospital. And I, at the Children's Hospital there in Noblesville, I said, you know, uh, we received excellent medical care. I was so impressed with the doctors, the facilities. We received top-notch, just top-shelf medical care. I'm at, I was preaching in the church here in town, and because of that, I live in North Carolina, I'm out of network, and because I'm out of network, I owe $6,000. I don't have it, but I'll pay it. And I just work on a payment plan to begin to chip away at it. You know, I got a letter back from that hospital three weeks later, and they forgave the entire bill. That's him. That's your God tonight. You have a need. He's Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And ladies and gentlemen, the streets of heaven are still paid with gold. God's not in a recession. He's doing just fine. And God will take care of you. And you could trust him to deliver in his own unique way. And you know what the greatest way that God did that? Again, remember in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the word begotten, it means, it means unique or one of a kind. Listen, this was the single greatest redemptive physical act that God did in the Old Testament. Parting the Red Sea and allowing his children to cross on dry ground. They were staring certain death in the face. Nothing they can do. Nothing, uh, no way to defend themselves. And they were standing certain death in the face. And you know what? Then God stepped in. In an amazing act of kindness and mercy and grace. And provided a way of deliverance. And eradicated and defeated their enemy. And now they're free. 
Need I remind you that all of us, that we were lost and dead in the trespasses of our sin, and we are staring certain death and hell and the wrath of God's judgment in the face, and, in a, and there is nothing we can do to change our circumstances. No way we could ever merit heaven. No way we could ever overcompensate for the sin that was on our account. And then 2,000 years ago, God stepped out of heaven in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God stepped in with mercy and grace and provided a way of deliverance for us. And that was Jesus giving his life on the cross, being buried and rising again. And we can be delivered from this stain of sin in our life, from this sentence of sin that was upon us. And we can be delivered from the scars of sin. And if you can trust God with your eternal destination, can't you trust him for everything down here? Trust him to deliver in his own unique way. Now, would you look at the end of the chapter and notice what happens here in verse 31. And Israel saw the great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. People feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. You know, the strategy we see here is view your current crisis as a faith builder for the future. View your current crisis as a faith builder for the future. You know what? For these people, the Jews... For thousands of years later, they look back at this one single event, and, and, and you know what? They thought, look how God delivers. We know that he could take care of us now. Asaph in Psalm 77, he looks back, and he recounts what the Lord has done. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, I want you ignorant how our brethren, they went through the sea. Because these things were written for our admonition. Many of you can look back at trials and difficulties in your life. And you didn't know what God was doing when you were in the midst of those. But now 5, 10, 15, 20 years on the backside, now you look back at those difficulties, and now you see the fingerprints of God all over the situation, do you not? Oh, man, I, God, I totally see what you were doing in that situation. Lord, thank you for letting me not make that choice. Lord, thank you for not letting me marry that person. That would have been a train wreck for 30 years, you know. And, and you, totally, you look back now, and you totally see what God was doing. Listen, that's what he's doing now. Trials, can I put it this way, trials and tribulations are the treadmill upon which God produces strength and stability in your life. Trials and tribulations are the treadmill upon which God produces strength and stability in your life. I remember as we moved into our first trailer, Kristen's mom came down to the Wilds Christian Camp to help us move in. And we had Abigail, she was one years old. And uh, Kristen's mom went to change Abigail's diaper, lifted up her, her T-shirt to change her diaper, and written on her tummy was a message that said, Congratulations, Grandma, I'm a big sis. That's who we announced to my mother while we were having another child. And now, it wasn't in permanent marker, right? We were able to get it off, all right? And, and you know, we had a great time with that. And announcing uh, that we were having another child, you know, three days later, Kristen started to suffer some complications. God saw fit to take home one of our kids home to a miscarriage. I realize there are many ladies that are, that are here, and, you know, maybe God's allowed you to go through that as well. We laid in bed that night in our little A-frame there at the wilds. We just wept. We committed that child to the Lord. All of them are his anyway. And I wouldn't trade the nuggets of truth that God taught us during that time. You know what, all the growth, it's not in the mountain. It's back down in the valley. 
I don't know why God would leave my good friend Matt Herbster and take his wife at 39 or 40 years of age. He's the director of the Wilds Christian Camp. Julie uh, surrendered her battle with, with cancer after 10 months of fighting. And I don't know why God would leave Matt with five kids and from five at the time to 15. And you know what I can tell you? That I preached to a thousand kids at a, on a platform and at the wilds. And after that service, I watched one by one as people would walk up to Matt and kids would say, you know what? My dad died this year. Or a pastor would come up and say, man, I had to bury my wife this year. And they would come up and they would, Matt would weep with them. He'd put their arm around them. They would cry. They would pray together. And Matt was connecting with those people in a far greater way than I ever could. And it was 2 Corinthians 1 verses 3 and 4 all over again. That the grace wherewith he had been comforted, that he was able to comfort other people. And you may not know why God has allowed sexual abuse in your background or physical abuse or whatever. And, and you might say, God, what are you doing or why are you doing this? But it could, could it not be that 10 years later that you may meet someone and share the gospel with them and they say, well, what do you know about sexual abuse? You're just a Christian. And you can say, you know what? I know a lot about that. That happened to me. But let me tell you who he is. God never wastes suffering. He's always going to use it for his glory. It's a gift. And if you're suffering in trials and difficulties, it's a gift that God has entrusted into you because he's always going to use it. View your current crisis as the faith of the future. Now you go through a similar difficulty that you went through 10 years ago. Now, man, you've already seen what God can do. And now you enter that trial with a greater degree of stability. You can't tell me Job wasn't a better Christian in chapter 42 of the book of Job than he was in chapter 1. I mean, what more could Satan throw at you? That's what he's doing now. View your current crisis as a faith builder for the future. One last one, I'll be done. Notice this is the first recorded song of praise to God. Verses uh, 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 15. So they're just delivered. They just see the Egyptian army dead. The waters return to her peace. And they come to the jarring realization that 400 years of bondage are over. Though they remember the whip across their back. All the social injustices poured out upon their elderly. All taking away all the food rations. Increasing their workload. But reducing the materials and the resources to produce those bricks. They remember all of that stuff for 400 years. And God has delivered them. And they come to the jarring realization that they're free and they break forth in spontaneous praise in verse one then sang moses and the children of israel the song of the lord and spake saying i will sing to the lord for you have triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider at the throne into the sea the lord is my strength he has become my salvation he is my god and i will prepare him in habitation my father's god and i will exalt him the lord is a man of war the lord is his name you know what strategy number six is don't forget to praise him man don't forget to praise him leprosy was a disease so heinous it separated husband from wife parent from child they had to live in colonies on the outside of the cities and they would walk down the roads crying out unclean unclean and one day our lord met 10 of them jesus said go show yourself to the priest the only one that could really verify whether they've been healed or not and only one came back to thank our lord my how we live life like the other nine praise him in all things 
for all things. God is good all the time. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trusteth in him. Have you ever been on a plane and somebody walks on a plane talking so loudly on their phone as if nobody else is on the plane? I don't know if you've ever seen that or not. Guy walked onto a plane cutting a business deal and yelling at the guy at the other end of the phone and slams the phone down. And you think, well, I guess they didn't close the deal, you know. And uh, he sits down. And he's right in front of the exit row. So his seat is a limited recline. That doesn't go all the way back. The little air vent's broken. The stewardess comes to help him. He yells at her. She runs to the back and she's crying. Finally, a guy watching this couldn't handle it anymore. He stood up, walked over to this guy, apparently in his $6,000 business suit, and he looked at him, and out loud, he said, shut up, man, and enjoy the ride. And the whole plane stood up and applauded. <laughs> Listen, ladies and gentlemen, if you're a blood-bought believer, by the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ, you are going to heaven! Man, enjoy the ride. But you know what I do often? I don't know, maybe you do it too. We complain about where the Lord has seated us. Or we complain about all the circumstances. And everything going on around us. Don't forget to praise Him. When the walls of Jericho came crashing down, remember God said preconditions to take the city, circle around the city, all the once uh, for six days and seven times on the last day, and then give a shout of praise. Do you realize that the word, the Hebrew word for shout there literally means praise? They praise God for the victory before God had even done anything yet. Again, that's a message all in itself. Praise is a catalyst. And don't forget to praise him. I'm going to close with this, and I'm going to tell you in advance that the illustration I'm going to give you, the end of it, is not true. You say, you can't do that. It's my message. I can do what I want. And, uh, but yeah, you know what part it is, and, uh, and it's kind of the punchline. And, and, but you know what is true? A lot of times i got to fly. I just flew to California, was there for meetings. And, um, and some people are afraid of flying because they're afraid of missing their, their flight. And so they not only set one alarm, but they set another 563 alarms to back up that one alarm. They're what I like to call alarm freaks. We may have some here tonight. I don't know. Well, you wake up in the morning. Oh, great. You know, I didn't need the other 563 alarms. The alarm goes off. And, uh, and, and you get ready. Your bags are there at the door. You grab the bags. You go out to the car. Everything is running like clockwork. You start the car. And as the car starts, the gas gauge is on empty. And the last person to drive the car was the good wife. Oh, you think, man, she did this on purpose, you know. I don't have time for this. So you go to the gas station, you know, you put like four or five gallons in, you pull the nozzle out and gas flying everywhere. And, and you think, man, I'm not going to make it. And, and you're rushing to the airport, and right in front of the airport, the exit there, there's an accident blocking the exit. Oh, man, you're just honking all, just move it over to the side, you know. And finally, they clear the accident. You go zooming around them. You think, the only chance I got now is I got a curbside check it, my, my baggage and, and all my luggage. So you pull up to the curb. The sky cap steps out. You hand him your bags. He trips. He drops all your bags. And everything, I mean, everything comes out. You're in the middle of the road picking up all your unmentionables, putting it back in your bag, you know. And, and then you go uh, uh, really to the security line, and they pull you over for a full body search. 
There's eight guys in turbans and trench coats flying through. You're like, what about those guys? And they pull you over. Man, you're putting on your belt, your shoes. You're running to the gate. And as soon as you get to the gate, you see the door of the plane closed. And you look at the, the students and say, ma'am, I really need to get on that plane. And then come the ominous words. No, I'm sorry. The almighty door is closed. Wow. So you mean to tell me everybody on the plane could never get off? Because the almighty door is closed? No, no, no. It's closed for you because you're late. You step over to the side, you look out of the huge window there, you see the plane. Yep, there's the call letters on the tail of the plane, the plane that I need that is now backing out of the gate, went down the runway and just took off. And you're just fuming. Can you identify with any of that? I mean, you're just fuming. You think, God, you got to be kidding me. No gas in the car, accident at the airport, guy dropped my bag, guys in turbans. I mean, what's going on? You know, you go back to the ticket counter and there's this huge line. You wait an hour to get back up to the front of the line, and now your ticket is $1,200 more than what you originally paid, and you're just about to lose it. But then something catches your eye, and you look over, and there on the screen is a huge TV screen with Fox News on it, and you see the same plane with the same call letters on the tail that you should have been on, and it flies right into a twin tower in New York City. And then something amazing happens. Out of the depths of your soul pours out all of this gratefulness, this thankfulness for God. Thank you that there was no gas in the car. Or thank you that there was an accident at the airport. Or thank you that the man dropped my bag. Thank you that they detained me in the security line. And it's almost like God is saying, since when have I never done the perfect thing? Folks, I don't know what you're going through and what burdens and trials you brought with you when you walked into these doors. Nobody may see it. Oh, but you know they're there. And I don't know what you're dealing with. But that's what God's doing right now. Since when has he never done the perfect thing? And ladies and gentlemen, you can be delivered in every difficult time. And you can go from panic to praise. But if you're living at this address where you realize God means for you to be exactly right where you are, that you are focusing, uh, that you acknowledge the enemy, but you keep your eye on the Lord. That you're staying calm and confident and giving God time and room to work. And you're not letting take over and you're depending upon God and letting him work. And you're trusting God to deliver in his own unique way. And even in your current crisis as a faith builder for the future. And you're not forgetting to praise him. Listen, when you are living at that address and that address only, you then and only then you can go from panic to praise. And God will always make a way for his tired and trusting children, even if he has to split the sea in order to do it. And if I could sum up all of these Red Sea rules, it would simply be this. The same God that led you in is the same God that's going to lead you out. And we have a God tonight that you can trust. The Red Sea rules.
Would you stand quietly as we sing?